Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for joining us on The Great Exchange, a podcast dedicated to looking at the world through gospel glasses. My name is Maddie, and on the other side of the computer, Nick again. How are you doing, man? I'm doing very well this day. It was a little bit of a gloomy day, but when this comes out, it'll be nice and sunny, so let's hope. perfect. Yeah, yeah. Is, the, <laughs> is that the forecast for the Saturday? That's what science is telling us. Well, you know, science is never wrong. That's true. I mean, yeah. they have secured the <laughs> foothold on truth. So yes, let's keep and that going. One thing I know is like climate science is the most sure of all the sciences. You know, meteorologists <laughs> are never wrong. You know, I, know I was much. I was always told, you know, if you ever <laughs> want to get a job where you can be wrong all of the time and not lose your job, <laughs> become a weatherman. So yeah. yeah, unless if you're the weatherman in San Diego and then it's just 75 and sunny all the time. So yeah, you could literally <laughs> just have a picture and it'll be the same all the time. So, yeah, no, that's... but speaking of changing pictures, changing of sceneries, we are back into Scripture Saturday and now getting further into the book of Genesis, into, well, I guess, or back into the life of Joseph. Yes, indeed. Yes, we have. Uh, and, you know, it's an, important account it's it's basically what happens in the flow of the text is it uh goes from the story of joseph's brothers selling him into slavery into to foreigners who then take him to egypt um and then from there it kind of traces judah's life as we saw with the, the story of judah and tamar and all the ugliness that befell his household, because it's really using him as a foil for what follows with Joseph. And, and it's really contrasting the two characters. And it's also showing how Judah's unrighteousness in the way that he dealt with his brother um, is reflected in the way that he runs his household, that a lot of these sinful behaviors and patterns have really come home to roost in Judah's own life. So it, it narrows in on Judah, some of the events that take place in his household, and then it kind of comes back out and jumps back into Joseph's life and his tale. So that's really what we're picking up on today, Nick. Do you have anything else to say? You're generally the guy who's doing the rundowns. Do you have anything to add on to that by way of context before we get into the, the scriptural text today? No, I think that's a really good overview of what we're going to be looking at, because if we don't place this story into the whole context of everything going on, we're going to see a lot of disconnect going on in our text that we're looking at. So placing it back into the context and then remembering that overall story, that overall plan of God's redemption through a specific people down to a specific person is going to help us understand the over, overarching story of all of Scripture and how God is choosing to save his people through the seed of the woman who would then crush the head of the serpent. And again, this is that same narrative carrying itself out so that we can see through the descendants of Jacob how this is going to come to pass. Absolutely. So here we are. We pick up in, in Genesis 39. Lord willing, we'll get through the entire 39th chapter of Genesis today. And we're exploring an account that I know most people who are familiar with the Bible are 
very familiar with. Well, most people might skip over chapter 38 and the really uh, wicked story of Judah and Tamar. I know a lot of people are familiar with what happens in 39 and uh, concerning Joseph and Potiphar's wife, um, which might say something about Christians in general, when we, you know, are, are happy to look at the, you know, triumphs and the successes in the people of God's lives, but we kind of want to skip over the, the more gnarly parts of scripture and certainly 38 falls within that. But um, without further ado, let's read the first six and a half verses, strangely enough. Um, uh, and then we'll get into two, some commentary, and then we'll take it from there. 39 verse one reads as follows. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian had brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Mm-hmm. So as we get here into chapter 39, it's basically picking up right where chapter 37 ended, which was how the Midianites had sold Joseph into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And here in 39 verse 1, we're seeing almost that same language showing that there is in chapter 38 kind of like a, an interlude in the story here to get us a different context, not to separate out the whole story, because remember, we're looking at all the descendants of Jacob and how they fare uh, to show where this redemption is going to come from in the future. But here in chapter 39, verse 1, we see that Joseph being brought down to Egypt, that's because he was sold by those Midianite traders to the Midianite traders by his brothers. He was sold to Potiphar, by those Midianite traders, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So what we're seeing right at the beginning here is just getting us back into the flow of this story. Mm -hmm. Joseph was unrighteously sold by his hate-filled, murderous brothers to traders so that they could gain some sort of monetary gain from him. And with little care of what would happen to their brother, they sold him into slave slavery. And then those tr slave traders went and sold them to another person. And that's exactly what we see happening here. And this is not something that's ever approved of in scripture. You are never supposed to sell somebody in this regard to make gain and profit off of them, especially when it is of your own family and your own blood as well. 
And that's really important that we see that right at the start here. But then verse two, right when we get into, we see where Joseph's at now. He's working for Potiphar. He's the captain of the guard of Pharaoh, the ruler of the land of Egypt. We see that verse two sets us up with something very crucially important to understand how this is all going to play out, especially as Joseph situates himself or God situates Joseph in his care. And that is in verse two, that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And that is probably the most important text as we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph from here on out is that the Lord was with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is certainly um, indicative of the life of Joseph. Um, we can look sometimes at, at Joseph as though he is the, the be all end all of the story, but clearly the blessings that he has are for the fact that God was with him and he walked simultaneously, you know, as sanctification is a synergistic process, right? He was working out his sanctification and his salvation with fear and trembling. And the Lord was with him in all that he did, which is the very foundation, the very basis for our success, for um, all that we do. It, everything comes from the hand of the Lord. It's all by God's providence. So yeah. we as good stewards trying to live faithfully in light of those blessings, it's just our reasonable service, Paul says, that we ought to live faithful in all that we do. And that is despite the crazy circumstances one might yeah. find themselves in, despite the lowest state that someone finds themselves in. Do you understand that God expects you to be faithful, to be content, to be joyful, and to be, you know, to persevere no matter the estate? Joseph's story is radical. You know, he's not harboring ill will, resentment. He's not calling for reparations. He's going about his life living for the glory of God. Um, you know, seeking his freedoms, trying to do all that he does to the best of his ability, um, which ends up advancing him because, you know, Proverbs says, if you see a man skilled in his work, he will stand before kings. Well, Joseph's a perfect example of that, yeah. right? He worked hard. He overcame the challenges that, that plagued him, that he faced, and he persevered in that. And over and over again, we see in these first six texts or uh, six verses that because of Joseph's sake, God blessed and prospered all that those who were around him for Joseph's sake. And that's a principle that we need to understand for, from scripture. When we look at the Decalogue, God says, I will punish the evildoers those who are wicked, those who hate me, those who are idolatrous to the fourth generation, right? But what, what is the blessing? How far does that extend? To thousands of generations. The blessings that God gives to his people, they don't just stay on his people, but they actually end up blessing those around them. Um, and they have a lot more uh, staying power. They have a lot more security and surety than the fleeting blessings that are given to 
the unbelievers. And we see that even in a nation like Canada, even in the Western world that was built off of Judeo-Christian principles, we've had thousands of generations, century upon century of generations of progress, of, of prosperity like the world has never seen. Um, and that is due to the long blessing of God upon people who walk in his way and who covenant with him. Now, unfortunately, um, those very wonderful blessings can really be um, undone in a matter of generations if people are not going to continue in faithfulness and continue in that way, which is exactly what we talked about when we were looking at the elections uh, the other day on our Wednesday's Word. Um, check that out at thegreatexchange.ca if you want to hear some of our perspective um, concerning the election uh, coming up here. Yeah, but it's really important that we recognize in this story as well that so far in the life of Jacob, or not in Jacob, sorry, in Joseph, what we're seeing is that he is highly favored and then he is brought low, mm -hmm. right? And he, he is given a place of prominence in his father's sight first off. He's given that robe of many colors and he is despised and rejected because of it uh, by his brothers. And now that he's sold, he's in a lowest state again, we see that God it's because of God's love and favor towards him that he is now elevated into another estate, right? He, though he is the servant of Potiphar, just as he would have been the servant, the son of Joseph or of Jacob, we see that ultimately, as you make mention here, Maddie, he is the servant of God and he has been found faithful in his work that God has set for him to do. And, and that's not an easy thing, I think, because when we think about maybe a place of blessing or of comfort or ease that we might have to be stripped away from that can bring up a lot of hardships or a lot of doubt or um, animosity towards God, especially when you think about how he is the one who first brought you to that estate. But this kind of reminds me of something that Paul Tripp always talked about. We, we always want, you know, God's grace, his blessing upon us in a good esteem, but we don't want that uncomfortable grace which shows mm -hmm. that we aren't to be self-willed and self-dependent, but fully dependent on God for all things. And what we're seeing here in the life of Joseph so far is that he remained faithful, even though every single bit of his circumstances had changed and they got worse, right? He's sold into slavery. He's then bought by an Egyptian. He's in slavery and service now to an Egyptian, this is not his life plan. This is not according to his dreams as, as far as he can see, right? He saw, you know, his brothers and his mother and his, uh, his father bowing down before him. And now we see him in slavery in a foreign land. That mm -hmm. is not his dreams coming true as far as he can see. But that doesn't deter him from acting faithfully still. And in that happening, we see that those blessings, that blessing of God upon him, spills over into the lives of everyone else that is in his company, especially that of Potiphar and his household. And because of God's care for Joseph being so great, mm -hmm. Potiphar no longer has to even care about anything that is in Joseph's care because he is aware that God is blessing him, providing for him. So as long as Joseph is in is in charge, 
he is going to be taken care of as well. And at the end of verse 6a here, we see that Potiphar has no care about anything except for his private affairs, right? He has mm-hmm. no care about how things are done, how things are stewarded, anything in his own house. Because Joseph, being a faithful and godly steward of all that God has given him, even though it is somebody else's as well, he has no care for how things will be managed because he's going to justly deal with all that is in his plate. And that is a great lesson and a, a, th- a principle that we need to apply to our own lives. God has given us each a lot, mm-hmm. especially here in Western, the Western world. We have prosperity beyond belief compared mm-hmm. to probably like 90% of the world. Mm-hmm. How are we stewarding what God has given us? Mm-hmm. Are we, are we being faithless? Are we being, you know, self-absorbed in it? Or are we using all that he's given us for the purpose of bringing glory to him? And, you know, sola deo glory is really being the stamp on Joseph life, Joseph's life here. And we can really see that coming to, to bear in how he stewards the gifts that God has given him. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting too, if we back up, what happens in the account that's before what what we're seeing in the text here? Well, Joseph stripped of his robe, thrown into a pit, then sold into slavery. And though his brothers unjustly strip him of this robe that he's been gifted, they can't strip him of the presence of God. They can't strip him of his good character, his prudence and virtue. And because they can't do that, they can't ultimately take away his success because those are the very things that lead to his blessing. Um, That, you know, Joseph, though he's kind of set up as this, you know, the the son that uh, Jacob doted upon, it's not because of unnecessary bias on Jacob part, there's certainly some virtue within Joseph. That's what the text keeps putting forward to the, to the reader that he, there's a reason that Jacob loves the son and prudence, virtue, wisdom, and righteousness are characteristics that are indicative of who Joseph is. And because of that, God blesses whoever comes into contact closely with Joseph, even, even the pagans around him. Yeah, exactly. And it's the Lord who's in charge of this whole thing. If we are to take one ruling principle over these first six and a half verses, it's that God is in charge. God is sovereign. God blesses Joseph. And he also causes everything that he does to succeed. So it's not that it's not only that Joseph is being a good steward, but it's that God is choosing to grant success to everything that Joseph does as well. And I think that's the case in our own lives as well. When we are acting in faith and faithfully, there is that potential that God will cause all that we're doing to succeed because we're not acting in hatred or animosity or sinful, sinful ways towards God and his rules and laws in how we are supposed to present ourselves. So I think that's really important that we take from that as well, that God is sovereign, even in the midst of unfavorable circumstances, as far as we can see. Absolutely. So let's press forward in the text. Let's pick up in verse 6b, strangely enough, but that's kind of the paragraph uh, division. And it says, now Joseph was handsome in a in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, 
lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then I could do this great wickedness and sin against God. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Yeah. And now this, this is really, I think the beginning 6B sets up a little bit of the reason why obviously the Potiphar's wife is, you know, wanting to be with Joseph, but it also puts us back in the story a little further as well, because when we remember Joseph's father, Jacob, when he went away from Esau to dwell with, with uh, Laban for a while, he came also to find a wife. And when he saw Rachel, she was beautiful in form and appearance. And I think this language here ties us back to Rachel, but also points us to the reason why Jacob had great love for Joseph as well. Because Jacob or Joseph was reminding Jacob of Rachel in that they shared similar looks and features. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something there in the language that's used because this is the only time that's used and it only connects us back to Rachel. So I think there's something there in that it's important to recognize that as Jacob saw Rachel and she was beautiful in form and appearance and he wanted to be with her. Well, in the same way we see now Joseph being beautiful in form and, or handsome in form and appearance, that's causing another person to want to take him in a similar way that Jacob took Rachel. And that kind of leads us into this story of lustful ambition, but great refusal to give into temptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is where you really see the contrast between Joseph, his character and his actions and Judah in the previous chapter, right? Judah fell into the uh, look, look and took, took um, paradigm, which has throughout Genesis only led to disaster, right? It's a giving in to the sin that crouches at your door. Mm -hmm. A very thing that we see present at the first in the account of Cain and Abel. Um, it's it's the look took motif is buried in original sin. That's exactly the the case when it came to Eve um, seeing the tree and then taking of its fruit because it looked mm -hmm. good. Um, yeah. But Joseph is lauded for his righteousness because he avoids that potiphar's wife is no doubt an attractive woman much to be desired she's you know uh, the wife of a prominent figure in egypt um and she's trying to use all her feminine wiles to seduce joseph so even in the midst of great temptation and you know, in a situation that's certainly difficult, Joseph remained steadfast. 
not only am I not going to sin against Potiphar, who's given me great blessing as a servant, he considers me an equal to himself. He's given me all things in his household, except for you. How could I sin against him, given the fact that he's blessed me, even in my lowest state? But ultimately, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Mm-hmm. So again, Joseph understands ultimately who sin is first directed at. It's first directed vertically, and then it it plays out horizontally. Um, and Joseph right here understands that masterfully. He sounds like David, right? <laughs> um, who comes after him and just understanding that you, it's against you and you alone, Lord, that I sin ultimate in the ultimate sense. And, you know, in his great righteousness, he refuses to partake in what would be a pleasing physical, uh, you know, uh, a reaction. It would, it would be good for him, you know, in many senses to have this, to fulfill his lusts and his desires when we're speaking just earthly, you know, earthly focus. But given the fact that he's looking at the world through gospel glasses he's understanding what god's word says to him he's understanding how he ought to live as one who's covenanted with god he refuses to give in to the lustful passions and give in to the temptations of the world the flesh and the devil yeah the advances of potiphar's wife here are persistent and what instructs joseph here is his desire to obey god and uphold the sanctity of marriage he understands from genesis the beginning of the book of genesis that we're in here that god made man and woman and a father shall leave his father and mother and or a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh And though this is in a pagan land, foreign land, Joseph is not going to equivocate on what he knows to be the truth of God for marital relations. And this is something that we should be very well instructed on as Christians. The world preaches a false narrative to us day in and day out. What is right and good in the world's eyes is not always the same as it is in God's. There are some times where it overlaps because every single person is made in the image of God and they inherently know right from wrong. But when the world preaches us a false message, a false narrative, and it goes against God's good design, we are to stand as pillars and buttresses of truth and stand against what the world says to uphold righteousness. And what we see Joseph doing here is that very thing. There are constant advances from Potiphar's wife saying, lie with me, lie with me. You're beautiful. I'm beautiful. Potiphar, my husband, he wouldn't care a thing. This will be better for you because I'm going to take care of you and make sure you're all good. Joseph has no desire in that. He has no desire to usurp a position of authority. He desires to stay as the servant, even to one that he is unjustly sold to. 
because he understands that what is most important is obedience to God above every other earthly advancement or chance of blessing or prosperity. Mm-hmm. I just uh, another uh, comment on the way uh, on the look took motif. Um, it's really important principle as Christians to understand because this is a good way to guard our hearts too. The eye is the gateway to the soul, and if the eye causes you to sin, Jesus says you should pluck it out. Obviously, speaking um, hyperbolically um, to to make a point when it comes to the importance of preserving your your soul righteousness right um, but we have to understand that that look took motif presupposes that sin often starts in the eye <laughs> that the, the, the that the eye um can then lead to the the desires it can play on the desires of our hearts that are are wicked um so there is an important aspect of Christians' lives that we need to be guarding what we're taking in, what we're seeing, what we're viewing, because, you know, it's so many times, it's just that one thing that then sets our hearts a fluttering after something that it shouldn't be, that then leads to patterns of sin and maybe uh, to different addictions, to various compounding sins. Um, so it's really important that we be on guard for what we're putting before our faces. And in doing that, we're, we're able to cultivate a, a good desire to, you know, not everything we're going to watch is precious and, and unicorns and butterflies, but what we should be seeking to do in our lives is to abhor the wicked and, and love that which is good, true, and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Question 84. What doth every sin deserve? Answer. Every sin deserveth God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. Do you love listening to The Great Exchange? You can subscribe to our podcast on any one of these podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts, and have two engaging episodes delivered to your mobile device each week. Our midweek message covers a myriad of topics and teaches us to look at them all through gospel glasses. And our Scripture Saturday episode is just that, an opportunity to study the Bible one passage of Scripture at a time. Miss an episode? Visit our website, thegreatexchange.ca, and you'll find the complete back catalog of our episodes. And don't be shy. We love to hear from you, our listeners. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're not social media savvy, send us an email to thegreatexchangepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining in our ministry as we help you look at the world through gospel glasses. So why don't we get into verse 11 through 18? Yeah, absolutely. So Joseph, after resisting all these advances of Potiphar's wife, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and 
went out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. And I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and I cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Yeah, so... This... So much for believing all women, Nick, right? Oh, yes. I remember preaching that message once. <laughs> <laughs> Believe... Well, <laughs> no, no, no. But, but even the movement, right? Uh, after the Kavanaugh hearing and stuff, we had a podcast with uh, yes. Sam Say on this. Yep. The motto was believe all women, believe all women, um, you know, because you should take people's... Take uh, them at their word. Anecdotal stories at, at, as as gospel truth. And um, we talked about how if that's the standard that we're going to apply, then biblically speaking, Jesus was a radical revolutionary who should have been condemned by the state to death for what he was doing, right? (laughs) Um, You know, if that's the standard, then in this case, Joseph isn't the righteous one. It is Potiphar's wife that's the righteous one. But anyone who reads the story for but a moment can see that is by no means the conclusion that you're meant to draw from the story. Well, exactly. And you can see that by what verse 11 starts with, right? Verse 11 here starts with stating that Potiphar's wife purposely intended for her to trap Joseph in a situation where he was alone, right? So what Mm -hmm. we're seeing here is that one day Joseph goes into the house to do his work. So he's just being faithful Joseph, right? He's doing what he's called to do, but none of the men are in the house. The only way that this would have been possible is for somebody in a greater place of authority to remove all other people, save the one that they are hoping to accost right? So what she does here, once she has him alone, is that she catches him by his garment and she keeps up the same old ploy, right? The Mm -hmm. same advance. Lie with me. Lie with me. This isn't something new. She doesn't come at him with something new and enticing. It's just the same old. He's refused time and time and time again. And now it's the same thing. She advances. Lie with me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the contrast here. Joseph is being righteous before, but one day he's alone and Potiphar's wife seizes him. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Mm-hmm. This, I think, is crucial, crucial, important. This part of this text here in verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. It's crucial for two reasons, because... We saw before when Joseph was given a garment from his father, 
which showed his place of authority and power. His brothers stripped him of it, and it ended up him in a hard place. Now he's been given garments by Potiphar in a position of authority to show his place of authority, position of favor. Mm-hmm. And now he's been stripped of his garment. He's gone away. And where's he going to end up? Not in a good place, right? <laughs> so yeah. it's the same sort of structure to the story happening here once again. But more importantly, it's kind of touches on what you've talked about before. It's, it's not the garment that is of utmost importance because what's internal within Joseph shows what's going to manifest in his action. And that's the same thing we learned, like when you went through the God or the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans is that it wasn't circumcision that mattered, but it's circumcision of the heart, right? Mm-hmm. If you have all the, all the external showings of religion, but your heart doesn't line up with it, it doesn't matter. Same thing here. Joseph could have all the favor of Potiphar and his wife, but if he didn't act in a righteous way, it's for naught. Mm-hmm. What we see here is that though he flees from temptation, flees from that advancement of Potiphar's wife, he resists. And that's exactly what all of scripture calls us as Christians to do, is that when temptation comes, we are to flee from it. We are not to, you know, start courting with it. Well, maybe I can get right up to the edge. Maybe I can yeah. get a little closer to the fire. Mm-hmm. And this is not a situation where Joseph is trying to get a little closer to Pod for his wife. This is the fire coming right towards him and saying, I'm here. I'm going to burn you. Hop in the fire with me. And Joseph is taking that very last capable moment to say, I'm out of here. You can go and do whatever you want, but I'm out of here. I'm taking no part in this. I've already stated my case. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm not going to sin against my God. I'm not going to sin against my master. I'm not going to sin against you. I'm out of here. But it doesn't even matter by the end of the story, as you've so mentioned. Yeah, no, exactly. And I I love the, the, the imagery that you touch on, right? Because that's biblical. You know, can you get close to a fire and not get burned? Proverbs 627. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? That is literally talking about this exact same situation. Mm-hmm. This temptation of an imprudent harlot who's trying to seek to tempt you into laying with her. Now, there's more like allegorical sense to it in the proverb there. But the, the general principle is that we ought to be fleeing, as you may mention, temptation like this. And I just want to make mention of one point that we shouldn't skip. And that's the fact that Joseph is a very righteous man. And and I want to say that because it's sometimes easy enough to resist sin when you think someone's watching. Mm hmm. This last moment where he resists the advances of Potiphar's wife is in a situation where he is alone. The house, it's just them. That's the scenario that's being laid up. He could have got away with it. You know, he, this situation he could have gone with, he could have run with, but it shows the strength of his character 
that even in this situation that he could have got away with, Joseph, knowing that it would be a sin of his before his master and before God, ultimately, he refuses to even give in to a situation which he could even get away with, right? So I think yeah, that's, that's really really important to to kind of understand and 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 you know keep before our minds that he's showing really, really outstanding character, even in the midst of these difficult trying circumstances where you know, and in that intimate setting too, like there's just so many things that kind of stack this whole situation up against them. But nevertheless, he continues to show forth his righteousness. Yeah, there, there's so much importance to that because Joseph, though he's removed from the promised land, removed from the covenant family, he still lives Coram Deo before the face of God. And that should be the ruling principle for our lives as Christians, is that though nobody else is around, I'm alone at home, I have access to the internet, I can go look at pornography. Mm-hmm. No, I live my life before the face of God. God is present with me at all times. That is the number one deterrent for partaking in any sort of ungodly action. And Joseph mm-hmm. here is demonstrating that. Potiphar's wife, on the other hand, has no concern for God. That's why she continues to seek to violate her covenant relationship with her husband and sleep around and commit sexual immorality, adultery with another man. Mm-hmm. And she adds sin to sin. And that's always the case, right? She tries to, you know, commit adultery. But when she doesn't get her way, what does she do? She freaks out and add sin to sin by adding a lie to destroy. And this is, I think, important in the the language that's used here, a Hebrew, not Joseph. She dehumanizes him even more and just gives him a title of his nationality. It's not even Joseph. The guy you bought to bring in and help us has sinned against me. It's no, that Hebrew that you bought And again, this is just that same story of how sin accuses each other rather than taking the onus on herself out once again, as Adam in the garden said, well, the woman gave it to me. The woman or Eve said, well, it was the serpent. Mm -hmm. We're always shifting the blame. And here Potiphar's wife is doing the same thing by saying, well, it's that Hebrew servant that you brought into this house. Mm -hmm. So it's not her fault anymore. Now it's Potiphar's fault. Yeah. So she's just shifting the blame over, trying to excuse herself, getting all fingers and everything pointing away from her rather than directing it at her and showing that she is actually the guilty party in this situation. Yeah. Guilty of trying to forsake her vow in marriage, guilty of trying to defile her marriage bed, guilty of lying, guilty of conspiracy, guilty of yeah, having a man unrest, uh, unjustly arrested and thrown in prison, like over and over and over again, she is guilty. Yet all the time she's passing the buck and pointing the finger. And that is the case when it comes to sin is we like to project our sinfulness onto other people. Mm-hmm. And that's a dangerous pattern of the heart that we need to guard against as Christians for sure. And we need to be wise to it. That 
you know, allegations for allegations sake are not true and they're not to be believed. Um, and, you know, even if it's politically expedient for us, if it's an allegation against an enemy <laughs> of ours or something, we ought not to just take people's words for it because that violates the standard of justice put forth in scripture where there should be two to three faithful witnesses that corroborate a story. Then that brings the trial to, to pass, right. Where you Mm -hmm. then dig into the actual evidence of the situation. Right. Um, In this case, it's a, it's a real, he said, she said moment, or she said he fled in this case. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's for Um, sure. Yeah, exactly. But we should get into uh, verse 19 to the end, uh, wrap up this text. So 19 reads, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a very interesting look at this, right? Because Joseph is falsely accused of making an advance on Potiphar's wife. And then what happens to him is that he is thrown into prison, right? So there's some gospel connections that we can kind of see here in the life of Christ because Christ is falsely accused and brought before a jury. And what do they do? They condemn him to death. The only difference here is that Joseph isn't condemned to death. But it, it again, when we look at the life of Joseph, it's always supposed to be that this is a type and a shadow of the one that is yet to come, the ultimate savior that has come to save his people. And what we see here is though Joseph is falsely accused, he should rightly be deserving death because he sought to make an advance to the captain of the guard's wife, mm-hmm. right? So this is somebody who is right under Pharaoh who answers to Pharaoh. Now he's second in command, basically. So he has such great authority that he should be able to say, you're dead. And he can do that. But I think there is some hesitancy in Potiphar because I believe he understands that, okay, my wife isn't maybe that honest and trustworthy because Joseph (laughs) has shown himself nothing but trustworthy this entire time. Why would he betray my trust in him and also every act of devotion that he's shown to his God in this one moment? This isn't, this isn't a one-time advance from Potiphar's wife. We know that. This has happened time and time again. And I'm pretty sure he may have caught in drift of that wind that was coming through the palace there. So I think there is a certain act of kindness in this, but also we understand that is the Lord staying, keeping Potiphar from doing more injustice, injustice to Joseph than ought to be done. 
because if he were to take his life, he would be taking the life of an innocent man. But though he doesn't excuse himself of the guilt of throwing an innocent man in jail here, he has not gone to that next level and heaped greater guilt upon himself. So I think that's really important. And also, when we see that Potiphar throws him in jail, he throws him in the king's jail, right? So that would be a jail of those who are traitors, those who sought treason against the king. So it would be of greatest point of confinement as well, enemies of the state. And I think that is of important too, because it's going to play right into the story as we move forward in the coming weeks of how Joseph ends up in a place of greater power and prominence within the place of Egypt when he is there. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like the events in Joseph's life, life keeps spiraling down and down and down, right? He's, he's going from his father's house to being thrown in a pit, being sold into slavery. Then even in that difficult circumstance, he makes the best out of it through faithfulness to God and his master. Then in this terrible situation where he's blameless, he's again brought even lower where he's now in the prison of the, the, the kid of the Pharaoh of the people that he's enslaved to now. So he's now brought even lower than the low yet. What do we see? It's, we see the, this chapter is bookended by despite these difficult circumstances, despite this difficult and hard providence that Joseph is dealing with in his life, he's continually faithful. Mm -hmm. He's continually righteous before the Lord and the Lord is with him. Though he's stripped of that robe, that technicolor robe, though he's stripped of his garment by Potiphar's wife, he is not stripped of the presence of the Lord and ultimately the good and virtuous conduct that comes from one who's been transformed by this, the, the spiritual blessings of God. That is something yeah. that we can look with great hope to and ought to, as you've made mention, Nick, point our eyes towards the better Joseph, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was unjustly um, condemned on our behalf for our sins. Um, and he gives us his spotless, blameless righteousness that we can stand before God with a, a clear conscience, knowing that because of the personal work of Christ, we stand justified. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And this, this text here is so wonderful to point us to that greater reality, right? We see that Joseph is favored. He's beloved of God, but there's a greater one yet to come, right? And we understand as Christians that the love that God has for his beloved son, Jesus Christ, is the same love that he bestows upon his people. And that's evidenced here in the life of Joseph. And that, as you make mention, he is brought lower and lower and lower even if there does seem to be, it's like a roller coaster, right? You go up and then you come down, but you go up, you go down, you go up, you go down. Mm -hmm. there, there's, there's this continual flow in this, you know, story that's going through Joseph's life here of, well, I'm in a place of prominence, but now I'm brought even lower. 
God's favor and love towards him never stops the entire time. And that is the hardest thing for us to grasp as Christians. We, we have adopted this over-realized eschatology, almost a, a, a false understanding of how the gospel works, almost a prosperity gospel view of our lives, you could even say, in that we believe that God is only loving us and blessing us when we are prospering. Mm-hmm. But that's not the case. Yeah, That is the hardest pill for us to swallow as Christians. And mm. we strive tooth and nail, tooth and claw, trying to keep every bit of riches and prosperity that we that God has given us in this life, rather than holding all the gifts that God has given with an open hand. Mm-hmm. If he provides something, we should be able to easily say, Lord, here it is. You've provided it for me. Do with it and me as you will. And the counterintuitive uh, reality of that heart disposition is God tends to bestow the greatest blessings on those who do not hold on to what they have with a closed fist, yeah. you know, who are willing um, and able when called to steward those gifts as the Lord would have it. We have to, as Christians, Nick, and I think it's great for you to point out, we have to have a good understanding of providence, not only easy providences, which we generally like, like to pray for and, and, and we praise God about his continual providence, like, hey, things are going really good. God's providing for me in, in, you know, in positive ways, right? In ways that prosper us, right? In ways of wheel. But we have to, on the other side, understand that God gives us hard providences, that he disciplines his children. He chastises us. He builds our character by turning up the heat in our lives to remove the dross, right? To purify the gold, right? He's about the work of making us into the image of his son. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that comes with some really, I mean, all the time that comes (laughs) with some, some really difficult pruning. I know, especially early on when, you know, I was after being saved, those were very difficult times, very exciting. But I also remember like, I, I kind of, feel like the Lord was peeling back the like layers of my skin, you know, revealing sin, you know, kind of like an onion, just revealing like the depth of my depravity and praise God, he didn't do it all at once, but, you know, just really removing and stripping that dross and really turning up that fire. And it was like a spiritually tumultuous time for, for sure. I mean, there's always periods of life where he's going to do those things to show you things you're missing, to make you more like Christ. But we have to have an understanding of difficult providences of uncomfortable grace, as you've made mention, because we have a really shallow understanding of God's providence. If we say Mm -hmm. that God's well, if God loves this world, surely everything that he's going to do is going to be for the benefit of the world that he loves, right? Surely yeah. all the experts and the scientists and everything will want to be best upholding the health of everybody. They'll be best working in a way that upholds that house. But like sometimes God gives us people what they need through judgment or through pain 
or through suffering or being brought low. That's what we see here in Joseph. This is all working out according to God's sovereign plan for his ultimate purpose. Yeah. And that's a very important thing that we understand is that what we need more than anything in this life is more of God and a greater understanding of our necessity and citizenship in the next life. We, we, we want to make this life all in all, but we're not made for this life. We're not made to live in a sinful fallen world with sin present in our lives. God wants to remove all sin, and that's going to take place ultimately when Christ comes back or we go to be with him and we are, all sin is removed from us. But when Christ returns and he restores this earth, removes all corruption and sin from it, that is the ultimate goal. And that's going to take our entire lives to have stripped away this desire and this longing for this life alone and a greater desire and longing for the next. And God is faithful and good to put us in those difficult and trying situations so that we do long for that, that that becomes the ruling principle in our life, that we want to live with God free from sin. And as a Christian for 10 years now, that is more and more the reality that I can say that that's what I want. I want to be free from sin and I want to live with God. That's my desire. That's my goal. Is that constantly the thing that dictates how I live my life? Unfortunately not. That's why God gives us the spirit and gives us conviction and repentance and faith. Wonderful, beautiful gifts Mm -hmm. that we can practice and exercise each and every day and pray that he would increase more each and every day so that we have a greater desire and a longing and a love for him as he has for us because his love for us never ends. And what he wants in us is that same love poured forth back to him and then outward to the world that we live in. Absolutely, brother. Well, I'm, I'm so blessed as always to be able to walk through this, uh, this text with you to continue our walk through the book of Genesis and to see what God's up to in this historical redemptive narrative, what he's doing through his people throughout history and what that has to say to our lives, how that can inform us, how to live in the here and now, how to look at the world through gospel glasses by looking at what God has done in the past and how, you know, really in the contrast between Judah and Joseph, how we ought to be like Joseph and not like Judah, but ultimately that comes from first and foremost, how their lives were directed. One was directed to God, to faithfulness to him. And what was the fruit, even in the worst estates, prosperity, goodness, you know, contentment, you know, um, joy, because he was about the work that God had put before him, even in, you know, dangerous and evil and wicked circumstances. The same was not the same in chapter 38 with Judah's family. He, he was in far better circumstances, but mm-hmm. his house was in way more disarray. Um, so that's, it, it pays to be a slave in prison with the presence of the Lord more than it does to be your own businessman just following after your earthly lusts and desires. It yeah. is 
Judah, who was in chains and shackles and truly in prison. It is Joseph who, even in these difficult circumstances, is truly free because he is the Lord's. So that's a good principle for us to keep before our minds. That's the beauty of looking at these stories, seeing how Judas brilliantly contrasted with Joseph and what we can understand of what that tells us about this story and how we can live our lives. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast. We hope you got something for it. If you like podcasts like this, definitely be sure to continue to tune in on Saturdays, Scripture Saturdays. Nick, before we bring this thing in for a landing, do you have anything by way of closing to say? Yes, I just want to remind all of our listeners that this coming Wednesday marks our 400th episode. Whoa! Yes, very hard to believe that we've come this far, but we'd really appreciate you spreading the word that we are, you know, going to be celebrating this milestone this coming Wednesday. Don't know exactly what we have lined up for it yet, <laughs> but no. it'll be a wonderful chance to reflect on how God has blessed us in this small podcast that we do from week to week for the last six years. And we just want to really thank him for that. So be sure to tune in episode 400 coming this Wednesday. That'll be coming out on all of the podcast catchers and especially go to our website, thegreatexchange.ca. That's where you'll find everything so that we can live looking at the world through gospel glasses. Absolutely, brother. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for that reminder. 400. That's crazy, man. We have, it's crazy to think we have more episodes than there are days in the year now. So like, <laughs> like if somebody wanted yeah. to listen to a great exchange episode every day for a year, they, they would need to add months onto that year. So it's kind, yeah. of, kind of crazy to think it's been a while, but I'm thankful for God's faithfulness to us. And we're just trying to plug along, be faithful um, and then, yeah, as you may mention, help people look at the world through gospel glasses. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, share, rate, and review. Tell us what you think on whatever platform that you find us on. And as we say at the end of every episode, it is finished.